Hello and welcome. I'm Eric. And I'm John. And this is the Wikipedia Chronicles. This is a podcast where we start with a random article, explore it, and then follow the links and see where it takes us. John, what random article did you happen upon today? My random article is Samuel Paul with two L's Andrews. Hmm. Okay. What about you, Eric? What'd you get? I got Gracie. Just Gracie? Gracie. <laughs> okay. Is that like a disambiguation? What are we dealing with? Well, it's not labeled as a disambiguation, but it might as well be. Okay. Because <laughs> uh, it's like has a a bunch of different sections. One is names, and it says Gracie family, Gracie name, Hurricane Gracie. And then there's <laughs> a heading places, and it says the Gracie mansion. And then there's oh, no. arts, entertainment, media, and it says Gracie film, Gracie television film, Gracie a song, Gracie another song, and then there's one on software, and then there's a C also, which has a different spelling of Gracie disambiguation, and another di- different spelling of Gracie disambiguation. So I don't know why it's not labeled as disambiguation, but that's pretty much what it is. Huh. Okay, well, um, I don't have anything as exciting as all of that, because disambiguations are almost invariably more exciting, because they were like instant gratification. You get to go to a disambiguation, if that's your random article, you're just like, oh, great, I have all these choices, I have all these options, I don't have to read anything or contribute, I can just go and go and go, and it'll be great. <laughs> Meanwhile, I have Samuel Paul Andrews. Want to know what he did? He's the first working class man to become a member of parliament in his chosen country, which happens to be New Zealand, which makes him not only, you know, just a working class Joe, but also in one of the least significant countries on (laughs) earth. So, I mean, I'm not trying to get too enraged about it here, but at the same time, uh, he's... He's a guy. He got elected. He went. To, he went to, from the UK to Australia, and uh, eventually ended up uh, settling in New Zealand in Christchurch, which is one of like the three towns you have an option of settling in <laughs> when you go to New Zealand. And um, eventually, he got elected in New Zealand. Hmm. Um, so, yeah. I mean, that's that's really all there is to say about that. Why don't we Why don't we go to Gracie? All right. I'll check out Gracie. Okay, well, um, I briefly mentioned the different options or different uh, things they have listed here, but the Gracie family is a Brazilian family known for their practice and development of the martial arts. Oh, I've heard of them. I've actually watched a couple of their uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu tutorials, and they explained... uh, I I won't spoil it. I won't spoil it, but that is a good option, I think. Mm -hmm. What, What else do we have? There's Gracie the name, 
And it just says a given name and a family name. No. Nope. It includes a list of people with that name. Nancy Nancy Gracie. <laughs> and then Hurricane Gracie was in 1959, affected the Caribbean and United States. Surprise there. I mean, the listeners don't know this, but I've already had my fill of storm talk today. <laughs> Just how we do things here at the yeah. house. And under places, we have Gracie Mansion, official residence for the New York City mayor. That could be cool. And then um, the Gracie film is a 2007 American film directed by Davis Guggenheim. And then there's Gracie, the television film, which is from 2010 on the life of the British singer Gracie Fields. And then there's a song called Gracie on the album Rockin' with Curly Leads in 1973 by rock band The Shadows. And then a track on the album Home Cookin' by Jimmy Smith from 1959. And then there's Gracie Software, which is an open ID server written in Python programming language that serves open ID identities for the local system PAM accounts. Well, who likes PAM anyway? Well, there's um, not even any links in that one, so... Yeah, I mean, I don't <laughs> know why that's there. It's a dead link. Yeah. So, of all of those things, personally, but this is, again, of course, based upon my <laughs> prior knowledge of it, I still have to stick to my guns here and say that I want to go with the Gracie family, the Brazilian family, known for their practice and development of martial arts. Hey, I'm cool with that, because we haven't really discussed any martial arts here. Ho-cha! Yeah! <laughs> yeah, it's a big family. Oh, yeah. It's it's pretty pretty big now. So, as I said, the Gracie family is a prominent martial arts family from Brazil known for their pre- development of Brazilian jiu-jitsu. They have been successful in combat sport competitions, including mixed martial arts, veil tudo, and submission wrestling events. As a family, they uphold the Gracie Challenge, which promotes their style of modern jiu-jitsu, or Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Okay, so on one part of the Gracie family in Brazil descended from George Gracie, who was a Scotsman, what? who immigrated in 1826 when he was 25 years old. George was the son of James the second son of family patriarch George Gracie and Jean Patterson. From George came Pedro, from Pedro came Gasteo, who was the father of Carlos Gracie and Helio Gracie. Carlos Gracie and Helio Gracie are in fact one-eighth Scottish. Cool. So they have a Scottish heritage. Well, weird. This martial arts family. Yeah. That's uh, and they're in Brazil, like yeah. very very cross cultural. <laughs> this entire concept. So Carlos Gracie is the founder of Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. Hmm. Uh, he passed uh, Maeda, who was a uh, Japanese judoka, or sorry, sorry, a Japanese judoka and prize fighter who uh, was in a circus show. That uh, there, that uh, Carlos Gracie's father became intertwined with, and uh, this Japanese guy Meda uh, basically 
trained Carlos Gracie hmm. in the art of uh, jujitsu. But the thing is that Carlos Gracie was just this, like, he wasn't a huge dude, right? Mm-hmm. So in order for him to get closer to uh, winning fights, he had to kind of develop jujitsu a little bit more and use various uh, assessments of the person's stature to be able to win fights by way of making them unable to fight him. Hmm. Basically using physics and uh, essentially gravity to his uh, to his opponent's detriment. There certainly are a lot of uh, family members down here. Oh, yeah. Looks like a lot of them are still alive. There's only three family members on here that um, are listed as dead. Well, when you do martial arts that are primarily centered around uh, defense and not offense, Hmm. perhaps you stay in shape while also not (laughs) sustaining damage. This is very true. It's amazing that the guy who founded Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu didn't even die until 1994. Yeah. That's a pretty good pretty good uh, stretch of time. Yeah, he had a... Seemed like he had a nice long night life there. It's a very interesting picture on here. Oh, no, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. The story I went on about length earlier was actually uh, a... His brother, Helio Gracie. Helio Gracie was the one that was the guy who was small and weak in stature. He was the guy who... Uh, he was the brother who developed the more modern jiu-jitsu style because he was oh, too, okay. too tiny. Too tiny to fight. <laughs> Except he wasn't. That's the thing. <laughs> see, do they have a picture of Helio? No. No picture of Helio. There is one on the uh, article for Helio, which may be where I uh, might have uh, uh, you know, got <laughs> my correction from. But... Well, you know, we'll get to that when we get to that. <laughs> I mean, there's not much else to talk about here. It just kind of says that they won some stuff. So we could delve into Helio. Yeah, I say we should do that just because he's the guy. Yeah. Born 1913 and died in 2009. Age of 95. That's uh, not too shabby. Yeah, and he was named Man of the Year in 1997. <laughs> That's, like, way too old to be Man of the Year. <laughs> but he was, but he was named Man of the Year, I should clarify, not by, like, time or anything, <laughs> but rather by Black Belt Magazine. So, still, I mean, to be recognized so late in your life yeah. as that as being somebody that relevant mm-hmm. and significant, that's pretty astounding, I would say. Yeah. Respectable. And this picture from here uh, is from 2004. So, I mean, he was pretty much still doing his martial arts thing all the way up his, towards he's the 90. end. He's 90 <laughs> there. And he's still in his martial arts robe out the floor of the crazy family gym. You know, what's kind of cool is that uh, this, this guy is the father of is the father of Rorian Gracie, who is the co-founder of the Ultimate Fighting Championship, or UFC, which a lot of people have come to really, really enjoy in recent times. That's interesting. Yeah. Looks like they are like the veins of the martial arts world. 
He only had 20 professional fights in his career. You know, I would say that's surprising, but remember that uh, Pacquiao-Mayweather uh, fight that was a huge deal for no good reason? That big mm-hmm. boxing match that happened like a couple months ago? Yeah. I was reading up on that, and, you know, boxing's not a super popular sport anymore, but mm-hmm. you would still think that for the amount of time Mayweather or Pacquiao have been fighters, mm-hmm. uh, that Mayweather would have fought more. Because they've both been fighters for like 20 years, right? Mm-hmm. 37 matches total. Wow. It's like two per year, if that. (laughs) So fighters don't particularly have to have that many official Mm. matches anymore. I think most of what they do is practice. Yeah. Kind of like Olympics. Like you train for a long time, Mm -hmm. and then you do like one big thing. Right. And ultimately, you do that one thing like once. Yeah. And then you're too old or you're not (laughs) the best anymore or something happens. It says here he began his fighting career when he submitted professional boxer Antonio Portugal in 30 seconds. What? In 1932. Wow. So, let's see. In 1932, he would have been 19 years old. And he took a professional boxer who I'm supposing, given the fact that Helio Gracie is not a, not a big man, is probably like way bigger than him, and he just took him out in yeah. 30 seconds' time. But then it does say in that same year he fought American professional wrestler Fred Ebert for 14 three-minute rounds. So he can take down a boxer pretty easily, but takes him a little longer for a professional wrestler. Fortunately, like bars, the professional wrestling time limitation ended the fight before anybody could win. <laughs> Uh, in Brazil, there is a law that doesn't allow any public event to continue after 2 a.m. So uh, th- that was allegedly why the fight was stopped. However, it, Gracie was a good sport about it. He admitted that he was stopped by the doctor due to a uh, high fever caused by swelling and that he had to undergo an urgent operation the next day. So hmm. he was just advised by his trainer that, like, listen, dude, you're pushing your limits. Just, you know, maybe we should quit (laughs) (laughs) Um, it looks like um, two years later he fought another wrestler for three ten minute rounds and the match ended in a draw so that would have been the second draw in his career even though that wrestler whose name was Vladek Zabzisko even though that wrestler was almost twice twice Gracie's weight the match ended in a draw. Mm. That's impressive. Yeah, that's nothing to shake a stick at. Yes. Not that you would. <laughs> it's not. It's not judo. It's jujitsu. Jujitsu sticks. <laughs> but then he did defeat a Japanese professional wrestler. What I want to know is: is this guy's a martial artist? Mm-hmm. What's he doing fighting all these professional wrestlers? And boxers. And people <laughs> that aren't other martial artists. Yeah. I don't know. Let's, let's let's keep reading, and hopefully we'll find something where he actually like picks on somebody his own profession. Yeah, well, like what kind of matchups are these that they're just like, hey, do you fight in some style? Do you fight in some style? Why don't you fight each other? Yeah. <laughs> like, how is a boxer supposed supposed to fight a martial arts master? I don't know. It just seems weird that because like you'd think the boxer would have to either you know adapt some new techniques or 
the martial artist would have to restrain himself to boxing standards, but I don't know. It just seems weird that I don't know they matched up people, but then again, it's is the 1930s, so I'm right. sure that was a crazy time where. <laughs> yeah, yeah, fighting was way more popular back then, anyway. So they probably had a lot less standards and yeah stuff. Well, definitely. I mean, every other sport had way yeah. fewer like safety <laughs> standards. Just all the football uniforms from back on that time. <laughs> crazy, just like the open face masks and the, the soft helmets. Like, uh, <laughs> uh. Ooh, okay. Um, in 1955, he participated in a three-hour, 42-minute fight against his former student, and the former student knocked him out with a soccer kick. What was the student's name, Eric? Valdemar Santana. Santana! (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. Smooth. (laughs) Smooth by Santana. Yeah. Great song. Great song. Anyway, um, apparently that also put an end to his uh, matches that would involve striking. Or his male Tudo career. Hmm. <laughs> okay, so um, this is a notable th- one here. Uh, apparently, he issued a challenge to a highly touted judoka named Kimura, and he made an agreement under what would be known as the Gracie Rules via the Gracie Challenge that throws and pins would not count towards victory. Only submission or loss of consciousness. This played against judo rules in which pins and throws can award someone a victory. So basically you had to tap out or pass out to end the fight. Well, to claim a victory, I guess. But um, in 1951... uh, Kimura defeated Gracie in a submission judo jiu-jitsu match held in Brazil. During the fight, he threw Gracie repeatedly Whoa. with Ipan Sionage. Okay, I don't know what that means, but it sounds pretty, <laughs> sounds pretty brutal. Well, apparently it's a one-arm shoulder throw. Damn. <laughs> An ouchi gari. Sounds like it hurts. <laughs> or it's a major inner reap. That's what it says. Or there's Uchimata, inner thigh throw. Harai Gashi, sweeping hip throw. Oh, no. And Osoto Gari, major outer reap. Man, he, Gracie refused to submit during that whole fight. Huh. And he actually was rendered unconscious early in the bout by a choke and uh, once he was released by the choke then the bout continued so (laughs) but Kimura did eventually win by other means even though technically he would have won right then and there but Helio Helio liked to fight too much Helio Mm -hmm. would not give up (laughs) Helio who loved fighting Oh, we got some last words here. His last words before he died were, I created a flag from the sport's dignity. I oversee the name of my family with affection, steady nerves, and blood. Not bad. 
Oh, wow. He was still teaching and training on the mat until 10 days before his death at age 95. That's nuts. <laughs> you only hope to be that good at 95. Yeah. You're still able to do that stuff. Wow. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's a fighter. You think about how short-lived people who play football oh, yeah. or boxers tend to be. The fact that he was still doing, instructing fighters <laughs> at that age. On the mat. On yeah. the mat. <laughs> What a guy. Yep. He definitely must have known how it was done. How to keep living. Keep on living living on. <laughs> okay, so I think that's enough of us uh, waxing this guy's ego in the grave. Uh, we can go ahead and move elsewhere. Yeah. Where to go? Could go to one of these moves like the Gari. I want to figure out what an ouchie gallery is. Let's see. I mean, I know what it is. It tells you, but I mean, still. Okay. Ouchie gallery is one of the original 40 throws of judo as developed by Kano Kano Jigoro. 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 (laughs) He's a so-so Jigoro. So I guess it's a pretty standard move in judo. If you look at the picture, I think I've actually seen this in various martial arts films. It's the yeah. move where you kind of wrap around the shoulders, but you're swiftly sticking your foot in between yeah. the foot, the feet of your opponent. And I believe the next thing you do is... Well, actually, let's just read it. In right Aochigari, Tori reaps Yuke's left leg with his right leg from the inside while pulling the uke down. Hmm. So, in competition, the reaping action of the classical variation is sometimes replaced with a hooking of lift or lifting motion, and the left hand can be used to block ukes while reaping the other. Hmm. Well, that's all there is to it. <laughs> I mean, I guess. That really is it. Yeah. Yeah, definitely sounds like it would put some pain into you. Could look into what a reap is. Yeah, I was kind of wondering what that meant. Let's go there, because I kind of just need some clarification. Mm-hmm. So it's a, basically a throw, I guess. It's a martial arts term for a grappling technique that involves off-balancing or lifting an opponent and then throwing them to the ground. And in Japanese martial arts, it's referred to as nagiwaza or throwing technique. Okay, here's um, under leg throws, reaps, and trips. It says, in a leg reap, the attacker uses one of their legs to reap one or both of their opponent's legs off the ground. So I suppose the motion is very much like a scythe were it yes. to be reaping a plant. You take your leg and you swipe it across the legs of your opponent mm-hmm. as though you are cutting the stalks of wheat. Yeah, like your, fall. your knee joint uh, kind of becomes like the hook. You Basically. just hook their leg and yep. pull it out. Pull them down. Or, yeah, I guess you'd throw them down technically, but right. still. You pull and throw them. Yeah, throw pull. Yeah. <laughs> oh, wow, it mentions scythe here in the next paragraph. Oh. I swear, I did not see that <laughs> before I made that comparison, but I'm glad. I'm glad I was on the right track. <laughs> Under the list of throws, there's a move called... Well, there's a hip throw, and it's called Ogashi. 
Oh gosh. Oh gosh. Yeah, so I guess the reap is specifically to do with legs. I don't think it applies to any kind of other throw. Really. I mean, huh. there are some really cool, really cool throw names: stomach throw, major outer reap, minor <laughs> outer reap, loin and hip wheel, <laughs> valley drop, reverse head hip and knee throw. <laughs> I don't even know how all of that would come together. <laughs> Even though the sound of it makes it seem like it would be explanatory enough. Mm-hmm. Nah. <laughs> There's also the good old fireman's carry. Yep. Classic. Throw over the shoulder. Mm-hmm. You know what that one's like. I think I mostly know of that from wrestling video games. Okay. Well, the problem with this article is that it just leads us back to places we've already been. There's a bunch of mixed martial arts things. This is kind of like the, <laughs> the dead end of... There's plenty of other, like, throws. What we could do is we could go to Scythe, because there is a link to it. That would take us out of the throws and judo techniques. Let's do that. All right, let's check out Scythe. As previously mentioned, it's an agricultural hand tool for mowing grass or reaping crops. Not so much used anymore. Because we have all sorts of factory uh, tractor machinery to do what it used to do. Yeah, and it's hard work using a scythe, let me tell you. <laughs> I went to a summer camp when I was a kid that was deliberately sent in like, set in like the 18th century. Hmm. And one of the things that they made us do, I mean, they made us do a bunch of stuff like making our own candles, mm-hmm. churning butter. And then once we had to like use really dull scythes because we were kids and we were dumb and they didn't want us to like use like full scythe or fully sharpened scythes <laughs> so we went out to like cut really really dry stuff because that would guaranteeably break mm. at the very least it's not fun it's not fun it's <laughs> laborious yeah the most popular portrayal of a scythe anymore is with the grim reaper obviously yeah and it says here that it's also incorporated with the imagery of the greek titan cronus Hmm. Which is something I didn't know because yeah, Cronus to me is always like clocks. Hmm. I think like Cronus, I think time. Yeah. It's actually still used in some areas of Europe and Asia. Well, it seems very specific because um, it says it consists of a wooden shaft about 170 centimeters long. Like, and then a curved blade about 60 to 90 centimeters. So, I mean, that. You'd think that they'd make different sizes. You would suppose. I mean, for different crops, you would think there might be utility for having not a standardized size of blade. Like, you would want to have something that would be a little more practical. And the specific um, handle part is called a snave, a snaff, a snaith, or a sned. It just sounds sounds like you're about to sneeze or something. A sniff. A sniff. A sniff. A sniff. (laughs) Scythe blade is maintained by peening the leading edge of the blade. So there are specifically made scythes for mowing fine grass. (laughs) And in those instances, the bevel is made almost as thin as paper. Wow. That's kind of impressive for a metal blade. Yeah. 
And it says that once you do have a blade established, you do maintain it very frequently with honing or with a whetstone or rubber. Uh, and uh, peeing over and over is necessary to recover the fineness of the edge, which you would desire, of course, while you were harvesting. Huh. It gets into the history here. Uh, apparently it was invented in about 500 B.C., and appeared in Europe during the 12th and 13th centuries. And originally it was only used for mowing grass. Really. What? <laughs> really? <laughs> this was the world's first lawnmower is what you're saying. Interesting. And I guess they developed that hand mower thing right. with all the blades and you just push it. Yeah. But they still had uses for a scythe, uh, just not that. Yeah. Uh Particularly, it's helpful for reaping grain. Although now, again, combine harvesters have replaced <laughs> the scythe in the farmer's field. Yeah. <laughs> so apparently, there's an international scything competition. The held things that we find at are Garico. <laughs> the international councils and competitions we find on this show. <laughs> oh my word. Yeah, people from Austria, Hungary, Serbia, Romania, and Asia appear to showcase their culturally unique method of reaping crops. Hey, when you're in the mountains, you gotta get it done somehow. Yeah. The Norwegian municipality of Hornendal has three scythe blades in its coat of arms. It's kind of cool, but given what the scythe has come to mean, <laughs> also a little unsettling. Mm-hmm. I mean, I respect heritage as much as the next guy, but... Man, that's just a little... It's a little creepy now, when you come to think of it. It says the scythes are beginning a comeback in oh. American suburbs. Hipsters, Since you terrible people. Don't use gas, don't get hot, don't make noise, do make for exercise, and do cut grass. Right, but so does a push mower. <laughs> just don't use a scythe. You're going to chop your own leg off, you morons. <laughs> oh, man. Ooh, here we go. A war scythe is a regular scythe that has been adapted for combat. So basically they spin the blade around, and then they can take it at people. <laughs> As opposed to it being in a position where it would normally be harmless when you swing it. That's moderately terrifying. Yeah. See, if you, there's a picture right next to it of war scythes, and like the blades are just like tilted up. They just look like really, really long sword spear things. <laughs> it's intimidating as hell. There is a link to War Scythes. That's cool. I want to see that. Yeah, let's go to War Scythes. Oh, wow. Oh, wow, that first picture. (laughs) Holy crap. That's a transition. That is something else. There's a big black horse rearing up and a little child in some kind of military uniform being attacked by both sides. Both sides by all sides. (laughs) Oh man! And then there's some guy with a sword. Raise, got it like raised up, about to like plunge it down into the kid's stomach or something. Ah, uh, God! Man, that's crazy. Yeah. So we've already uh, established where War Scythe is, but they were a pop. Where, where were they popular? I suppose is the next question. Mm-hmm. Well, War Scythes were a popular weapon of choice, and uh, many peasant uprisings were sort of. Uh, very quick to utilize their scythe <laughs> for uh, other means. Well, uh, you know, 
gotta make do with what you have. I mean, I guess so, but I didn't think it would go back this far. The fact that it goes back to an ancient Greek historian by the name of <laughs> Xenophon, who describes in his work Anabasis that the chariots of our Taxerxes II uh, had projecting size fitted. That's a little, like, that goes back pretty far. We're talking Xerxes people here. Yeah. Like, not the Xerxes, but Artaxerxes. It's a kind of Xerxes. (laughs) It's not the 300 Xerxes, but it's a Xerxes. Yeah. It's like a junior Xerxes. One Xerxes is as good as another. Right. They're interchangeable. You get the idea after one or two (laughs) of them. And this is the second one, so you should really have the idea by this one. Yeah. Artaxerxes (laughs) 2. Okay. Here's a... An interesting link just after that. Um, Say it. Bohemian Ear Spoon. Yes. <laughs> That's the one. Wow. Oh, and they added side spikes to it. Yep. That's what a Bohemian Ear Spoon is. Bohemian Ear Spoon is a war scythe with spikes on the side. <laughs> they just had to make it a little more hot topicy, and voila. <laughs> I don't know how it became. I, I want to know how it became known as a Bohemian ear spoon, though. <laughs> like, do people have that much trouble reaching each other's ears, or <laughs> like, do they think that there's that much distance oh, in there? Mm. It's like or maybe the <laughs> spikes. Maybe the spikes were the ear spoons. I don't know. Oh uh, yeah, it could be. I really don't know what ears have anything to do with it, or spoons. Well, we can always check it out. Let's check it out. When you come across a bohemian ear spoon, how can you pass that up? I don't think you can. <laughs> Oops, we've made a mistake. Mm. It's a stub. It is a stub. We've been stubbed. Well, we have three options from here. We have pole arm, spearhead, or boar spear. Oh, well, boar spear sounds like a boar. Mm. I can tell because I started to think about it and I immediately started yawning. <laughs> Well, the spearhead sounds a lot more interesting than a pole arm. Right, because we know what a pole arm is, but yeah. a spearhead may have like a history to it. Yeah. Well, we always hear about uh, like Indian arrowheads. It's similar. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Well, looks like spearhead is the one. Because okay. they don't really. Oh no. Oh no! But, we went uh, to Wiktionary. It's Wiktionary. No, no, no! This is this is verboten. This is against CWC policy. Uh, Away, avast, avert your eyes. The most interesting one led to Wiktionary. Okay, that's not possible. So we need pole arm or boar spear. Okay, uh, fine. We'll go with boar spear because at least then we still get spear. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Uh, close. All right, right, it's not too much bigger, but guess what? A boar spear is used for boar hunting. Who (laughs) knew? And it looks like a spear. Wow. So, um, <laughs> yeah, it's a popular weapon of war uh, mm-hmm. from uh, like ancient times up until about the Middle Ages. There's still a variant of it in use in battle in the 15th century, but after that, it kind of went by the wayside. Hmm. All right, so from here, we can go to Owl Spice. Like or spice? Maybe. I don't think it's going to be spices. Unless we're talking about, like, Ooh. cooking the boar that you kill <laughs> with a boar spear. There's also bear spear. <laughs> okay, all right. 
sounds more interesting than a boar spear. I'm going to go for bear spear. Yeah, I think... Hopefully it's... Okay, it's a little bigger. Got a little bit more to go on here with the bear spear. And guess what? It's a spear used for hunting bears. Wow. Whoa. <laughs> okay, so the spear part of it looked more like a bay leaf. So it was a bit, little bit larger for the killing of the bear. And the spear was a little bit longer as well to help it keep it keep the bear at a safe distance yeah. away from the hunter itself. Definitely wouldn't want a close-range weapon with a beer, no, bear. No, no, no. Gotta keep it out. Gotta keep it away. In Slavic countries, the bear spear was known as a rogatina <laughs> and used since at least the 12th century. Russian Chronicles first mentioned its use as a military weapon in 1149 AD and as a hunting weapon in 1255 AD, <laughs> though it was used by Prince Daniel of Galatia in boar hunting. <laughs> because apparently Prince Daniel of Galatia loved overkill. <laughs> he couldn't settle for the boar spear. He had to get the one that was just a little bit bigger and ultimately intended for much larger animals because he wanted to be inhumane. I don't know. That guy sounds like a mean person. So, am I to understand that it was used as a military weapon first in Russia and then as a hunting weapon? Um, yeah. I think, I mean, it says Russian Chronicles first mentioned its use as a military weapon in 1149 and a hunting weapon in 1255. Now, that's based on chronicles that we have today. Uh, it isn't to say that it's not plausible, but at the same time, considering Russia's history, it's entirely plausible. Yeah. Moscow is geographically indefensible, and that is a core tenet in Russia's culture and why they have so much land, because mm. they eventually just got... They just owned land until they didn't have to worry about geographic uh, <laughs> problems. Because, like, other major cities in European countries are naturally defensible. Moscow's not that. And, uh, yeah. So, maybe that's why. I don't know. Yeah. Okay, so from here, we can go to a lot of different places. This actually yeah. opened up our options quite a bit. That's true, yeah. We can go to locations, we can go to other animals, we can go to hunting for animals, we can even go to the exotic and delicious bay leaf. Mm. Is, okay, is a wisent an animal? Yeah, it's a, some sort of bison. Ah, uh, okay. I can see the resemblance in the word there. A wisent? Bison. A bison, wisent. Yeah. Half, of, half a bison. And there's also war horses. I figure it this way. Either we go to Bayleaf and hope that we can get to the Pokemon, or we go to War Horses and hope that we can get to the classic 2014 Steven Spielberg film, War Horse. Mm. Well, let's take our chances with the Bayleaf. All right. We, we've done uh, some animals here. Let's go with a different direction. Okay, so... Ooh, interesting. There's a couple of different types of Bayleaf. Hmm. Uh, bay leaf refers to the aromatic leaves of several plants used in quick cooking. Bay laurel is the first one here. Fresh or dried bay leaves are used in cooking for their distinctive flavor and fragrance, and they're not meant to be eaten, but these are uh, the ones that you see in your soups, stews, that kind of thing. It's the one that you're not supposed to eat, or if you do eat it, you have to like, or if you get it in your plate, you have to be like, 
I don't know, some families are like, you have to like high five somebody or kiss somebody. It's, <laughs> it's weird. Um, but it is a tradition. Hmm. Yeah, there's also the California Bay leaf, which is the leaf of a California Bay tree. Um, it's also known as the California laurel, Oregon myrtle, and pepperwood. Um, it has a stronger flavor than the bay laurel. Then there is the Indian bay leaf, or the malabathrum. It's somewhat similar in appearance to the leaves of bay laurel, the first one, but it is culinarily quite different, having a fragrant... Ugh. What did I just say? <laughs> having a fragrance and taste similar to cinnamon bark, but a little bit milder. Huh. So that's a departure. Yeah, that's quite a bit different. Um, there's also the Indonesian bay leaf, or Indonesian laurel, and it's not commonly found outside of Indonesia. And this herb is applied to meat and all, less often vegetables. So a good dry rub there. Yeah. Uh, second to last, but certainly not second to least, is the West Indian bay leaf, the leaf of the West Indian bay tree, used culinarily to produce the cologne called bay rum. Huh. Which I have heard of. I don't know why. <laughs> There's also the Mexican bay leaf. No description provided. It's there. It's around. We don't use it for anything, but we have it. <laughs> we know it's there. Yeah, so these bay leaves have a very sharp and bitter taste. They're a very, very strong flavor. As it is the case with a lot of herbs that you would normally come across, like oregano or parsley or uh, mint, if you smell the plant, you're like, oh, yeah, yeah. cool. But if you taste it, you just immediately go, ah. <laughs> What she really wants to get that smell out. Now, in the mm -hmm. case of the bay leaf when you dry it that is when you will get the bay leaf to be its most pungent mm. in any cooking application so you want to make sure that you dry it out a fair amount before using it in any dish you don't want to pick bay leaves <laughs> fresh off the plant that is contrary to popular belief mm. a bad idea <laughs> wow this this uh, bay leaves goes all the way back to ancient Greeks and um, they are a fixture of many European cuisines, as well as the Americas, but mostly European. I enjoy using bay leaves in cooking. Yeah. Whenever you make a good beef stew, you want to <laughs> have a bay leaf in there. Yeah, definitely, definitely um, soups and stews are where bay leaves are best utilized. They're right at home. And they do make for good, like, steak seasonings. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that is more than enough reason for me to keep them in my pantry. Yeah. Now, there is a reason why many people avoid eating these things or why whoever receives the bay leaf and during the course of the meal is the butt of some sort of joke. <laughs> uh, because fundamentally, the leaves are most uh, often removed before serving because they are abrasive in the digestive tract. In many people, they will cause uh, some irritation. So it's not a good idea to consume these things. It's not people don't make you the butt of the joke because they want you to be the butt of a joke. <laughs> they make you the butt of the joke because you really shouldn't eat that. They're trying to like give you a good hint. Yeah, I, I think it's a good rule of thumb that if something has a very very strong 
flavor or smell or taste, it's a good idea not to... It's a good idea to be cautious with it. Exactly. Like, you know, you have your sauces and mm-hmm. all sorts of hot tamales. <laughs> hot tamales. And, yeah, your bay leaves and stuff, you know, like all that kind of stuff. Like, if you eat too much of it, you're going to... Might want to take off work the next day. Yeah, yeah. Don't want to. Don't want to be impolite, but that's like that's entirely true. Um, the thing that I saw here is uh, I I like to cook a lot of Indian food personally. Mm-hmm. I uh, made a significant investment in a bunch of Indian spices, and one of the one of my favorite Indian spices has been this thing called garam masala. I had mm-hmm. no idea what was in this stuff because when you get it, it's this sort of sweet, spicy, delicious-smelling brown powder, and you're kind of huh. like, I don't know what's in this, but it smells awesome. <laughs> I don't really care what's in it. I'm just gonna throw it in all of my food with reckless <laughs> abandon. And it gives you this really nice spice and mm-hmm. a little bit of sweetness and a little bit of like cinnamon too. And apparently, the bay leaf is a major constituent of garam masala. I had no idea whatsoever. Hmm. So I've been eating this stuff that you're not supposed to eat for, oh, I don't know. It's been at least like a year and a half now since I started doing this. So, um, I mean, the more you know, right? That's why we're here. We're here to educate not just the world, but ourselves. <laughs> okay, so bay leaves are usually crushed or ground before cooking, or they they can be, but... It creates a better flavor and fragrance than the whole leaves, but it's also harder to remove them. So they are usually put in a bag or tea infuser to get the flavor out, but not leave the leaves in. Wow, they're that bad for you to eat? <laughs> oh my word, what have I been doing to myself? <laughs> oh, it says uh, ground bay laurel may be substituted for whole leaves and does not need to be removed, yes. but it is much stronger due to the increased surface area. Oh, well, you know what? That's fine. Because ultimately, I think at this point, the benefits of bay leaves being there mm-hmm. far outweighs the benefits of them not being consumed. Yeah. Like, I don't see the reason to exercise caution. And here's another good reason to keep bay leaves close to you at all times. Bay leaves can be scattered in a pantry to repel meal moths, flies, roaches, mice, and silverfish. Oh. And I, for one, not a big fan of the silverfish. <laughs> like, I don't mind them as creatures, but when I see them in my pantry, that's when all bets are off. <laughs> it says the bay leaves are uh, an active ingredient in killing jars. Hmm. I'm not sure what a killing jar is, but there is a link. Yeah, uh, interesting. Crushed, fresh young leaves are put into the jar under a layer of paper, and the vapors they release kill insects slowly but effectively hmm. and keep the specimens relaxed and easy to mount. The leaves discourage the grow of molds, and oh. they are not effective for killing large beetles and similar specimens, but insects that have been killed in a cyanide killing jar <laughs> can be transferred to a laurel jar to await mounting. Oh, man, I don't even know what any of that is. I think they're saying, like, if you want to immobilize and kill off an insect for the purpose of being able to put it in one of those little glass cases where you have like <laughs> the insect like and then like the species name uh, underneath okay. it like, you have it like pinned to a piece of styrofoam okay, for some yeah. sort of museum exhibit that's what they might be after but I'm not positive that sounds about right though looking at the time that we have here in the podcast we could end on killing jars we could <laughs> 
That I think be, I think we should. I think we should do that just because the title of this episode <laughs> will just be a little bit more fun. Gracie to killing jars. <laughs> and there's even a disambiguation for the killing jar. Oh no. <laughs> um. But yeah, it is. A device used by entomologists to kill captured insects quickly and with minimum damage. So basically, it overpowers the insects to death. So they don't have to, like, crush them or destroy their bodies or right. in any way. It leaves them perfectly preserved so that they can further study the structure of the bug mm-hmm. in question. So, the jar, typical glass, must be able to be sealed... And uh, one design has a thin layer of hardened plaster of Paris on the bottom to absorb the killing agent. Hmm. The killing agent will then slowly evaporate, allowing the jar to be used many times before needing to refresh the jar. Wow. Um, The most common killing agents are ether, chloroform, and ethyl acetate. Oh, so we're literally like (laughs) chloroforming... Chloroforming these bugs. Yep. Okay. A little strange. A little strange. And also cyanide. Mmm. Various forms of cyanide. Hooray. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like if you can use a bay leaf, that would be preferable to chloroform or cyanide. I would think so. I mean, it seems a little bit more humane, at least. Mm-hmm. I mean, ultimately, we're still killing them. So, I mean, yeah, one it's six one way, half dozen the other, if you ask me. But I just yeah. like the idea of the bay leaf more, I suppose. Yeah. It's from nature. It's like, this is supposed to happen. <laughs> Plus, it leaves a better smell, I'm sure. Oh, well, yeah, if we like it. Well, yeah. Which I think we do. I think so. I mean, it's a nice, it's a nice smell. I like herbs. Yeah. Herbs in general are good. It says that uh, killing jars are only used on hard-bodied insects. Soft-bodied insects, uh, such as the larval stage, are generally fixed in an ethanol at 70 to 80% concentration. So huh. that's <laughs> a little <laughs> more lethal. Yep, um, yep. <laughs> I'd, I'd say that would be, do the trick. Yep, yeah, that should. That would. I mean, I would... Probably not live too long in that concentration of ethanol. Ooh. <laughs> well, that's about all there is to say on the subject of killing jar. So do we have time for the killing jar disambiguation? Maybe. I s- suppose we could do that. All right. Let's just see what's up. Okay. There's only a couple options here. The killing jar, which is a song written, produced, and recorded by Susie and the Banshees. And the Killing Jar novel by Nicola Monaghan. There's another novel. And then there's a film, which is a thriller directed by Mark Young. And then the device used by Antonius. Hmm. <laughs> well, that is uh, <laughs> pretty much what I expected, I suppose. Yep. So there you have it. From Gracie to the Killing Jar disambiguation. <laughs> If you enjoyed this, please visit facebook.com slash twcpodcast. Give us a like and follow. And head over to iTunes and rate and review us. And you can also find new episodes on our website, twc.erictoribio.com. I would like to thank Louis Armstrong for our theme song. 
and Tiny Parham and his musicians for our outro song. So thanks again for joining us. I was Eric. And I was John. And this was the Wikipedia Chronicles. Yeah. Okay, a little weird to end on disambiguation. But I mean, you know, you've got to gotta stop someplace sometimes. Yeah. Killing Jar. I'm actually really disappointed that Killing Jar wasn't like more stuff. Yeah. Seems like a pretty good title for stuff. Maybe the thriller here is actually worth something. Oh. The Killing Jar stars a bunch of guys <laughs> that look like weird foreign knockoffs of like Owen Wilson and Bruce Willis and Chris Rock, oddly. <laughs> Oh, it stars Danny Trejo. Yeah, and Michael Madsen. Oh, that's who that guy is, of course. Hmm. Wait, that's Michael Madsen? Yeah. Wait, yeah, yeah, that's him. Well, he has not been well since Free Willy. <laughs> or since Reservoir Dogs. Gunman immediately discounts Noreen and the young couple. He first interrogates Hank, who, after being shot in the leg, reveals that he is an ex-soldier who is cheating on his wife. After being shot, he admits that he has sex with women and men at truck stops, gas stations, and bathrooms. Satisfied that Hank has held nothing back, the gunman kills him. That's my random excerpt from this article. Wow. That's... What a thrilling film. It is a thriller. That's what it's there for. Ooh, a 2.9 out of 10 on Rotten Tomatoes. Ooh. 0% of seven critics gave the film a positive review. Wow. Wow. That's uh, quite the accomplishment. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Not only is it 0%, but it only gets seven critics. Andrew Barker of Variety Heralds. It's a spectacularly boring chamber thriller. <laughs> the Hollywood Reporter raves. A bland thriller with reheated characters and stock dialogue that's as crisp and fresh as yesterday's chicken and biscuits. <laughs> Gene Castulius of the New York Times called it a cheap hostage drama with a lot more swagger than substance. <laughs> and my favorite one is David Johnson of DVD Verdict called it a below average film that quote, really craters in the last 10 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's pretty great. That's pretty well. great. <laughs> hmm. Who would have thought? Man, even this first paragraph is terribly written. It stars Michael Madsen as a psychopath who takes the occupants of a remote diner hostage, only to realize that of them is more dangerous than the gunman. <laughs> of them. Of them. <laughs> of them who?